One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. BBC World Service, welcome to The Real Story. I'm Ritala Shah and this week we're asking if Brazil is slipping towards authoritarianism. If the polls are right, this weekend the country is poised to elect an obscure far-right politician as its next president. Jair Bolsonaro looks set to triumph over the left's Fernando Haddad. The voters face a stark choice. We believe he's, he's an honest person. He's been in politics for a long time and he has nothing bad on his name because he's a patriot. He loves his country and he has nothing. He hates corruption. We are all here because we're tired of corruption. We're being stolen. They're stealing from the children, from education, from the kids. People that steal education, they steal the future of our country. We believe this man is the chance to change the history of our country right now. Right now we believe he is the best person to take care of us. My concern is that maybe he's not going to pass any law or anything like that against gay people or women, but people who were recently afraid of fighting against gay people as if they, had, they were doing something bad, now they are not afraid anymore. They think they can do that because we are vulnerable, we, we are seen as a minority. And they say that ah, democracy is for the majority, and it's not that. They have the duty to protect the minorities. So it's not a democracy anymore. Voters discussing their views of Jair Bolsonaro. Well, on this week's Real Story, we'll be discussing his plans for Brazil, who supports him, and can a man who speaks so fondly of Brazil's military dictatorship really be trusted with its democracy? Before we meet our panel, let's hear a bit more about Jair Bolsonaro and how he's come to prominence. Katie Watson is the BBC's South America correspondent. He's been a congressman for nearly 30 years and... In that time, he's been quite insignificant, if you like. I think he's passed uh, just a few laws. Some of his proposals have become law. But his rise has been in the past year or so, and it's taken everybody by surprise. He's now running under the Social Liberal Party. It's a very small party, or it was, until the first round when um, it gained a lot of seats in Congress. So it, it feels as if anybody who's associated with him seems to win seats in Congress and he's a bit has a bit of a kind of meters touch, if you like. Certainly has taken quite a few people by surprise, this uh, rise so late in life. So what does he stand for? What's he selling? Well, he's selling conservative values, the role of the family. And that's something that he has really made a priority. It's made him very popular among the evangelicals, which is a, a growing religion in Brazil. He is Catholic himself. Um, he was. His wife is evangelical. So he kind of covers the basis, if you like, in terms of in terms of religion. But he's also a former army man and he has an awful lot of support among the military. He is a man who has in the past shown his admiration for the military and the role of the military in the dictatorship between 1964 and 1985. And that's what is also probably the most contentious part of his candidacy, um, this support for what happened, the, the torture, for one, uh, the denial that it really was a, a, a dictatorship. And I think that's one of the biggest concerns um, going forward. You know, what does his rule mean? Will, if he wins, does it mean it will be a return to the past? When he said himself that he you know, wants to have a Brazil from, you know, 40 years ago, and that's worrying quite a lot of people. And what about minorities? 
Brazil thinks of itself as a rainbow nation, many different kinds of people living together. It does, but it has a conservative wave that has got much stronger. So the LGBTQ community is very concerned. There has been an increase in violence towards the community. He's known as a bit of a misogynist. He's justified why women uh, who are pregnant don't get paid as much as men because they cost more, especially when they go on maternity leave. He's racist as well. He's made a comment about quilombos. These are communities of slave descendants. He said that they are lazy, they're not fit for procreation. These are the things that, you know, really worry minorities here in Brazil. Um, and you speak to his supporters and they say, well, it's just a bad joke. You know, he doesn't mean that. He's not racist. It's just, you know, something he said. But it's the fact that he says these just legitimises uh, the violence towards these communities. And the man who's running against him, who appears to have been to some extent all but eclipsed, Fernando Haddad. Tell us a little bit about him. So Fernando Haddad is from the Workers' Party, and the Workers' Party was made famous by Lula da Silva, who ruled between 2003 and 2011. Now, he's in prison for corruption. His successor, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached. The Workers' Party still remains the strongest party in Congress, and it's still a very loved party by many, especially in the northeast of Brazil, a very poor part of Brazil, because the Workers' Party did lift so many millions of people out of poverty. But it's been tainted by the corruption scandals. Uh, wealthier Brazilians, especially in this part of Brazil, in Rio, in Sao Paulo. It's seen as this you know, symbol of corruption at the very top, that it brought Brazil to its knees. So Fernando Haddad, who took over because, of course, Lula was trying to run for, the, for these elections. Because he's in prison, he wasn't allowed to. And for the first round, Fernando Haddad was kind of running under Lula. But when Fernando Haddad came, went through to the second round, they dropped all mention of Lula. Uh, the colours of the party, which were red, have kind of changed. The campaign stickers and colours have changed to red, green and blue, which are the colours of the Brazilian flag. They're trying to shake that image as much as they can, but it's probably too little too late. Fernando Haddad is a former mayor of Sao Paulo, a uh, former education minister. He, he's a prominent man, but in the south of Brazil, in Sao Paulo, in these big cities, you go further north, people don't really know who he is. So he's up against um, a very strong character, Jair Bolsonaro. The polls are showing um, that Bolsonaro is definitely going to be taking the, the top job. The BBC's Katie Watson. Well, now that we've got an idea of who and what we're talking about, let's introduce our panel. Dr Marouk Doctor is a reader in political economy at the University of Hull. Dr Monica Ahuda de Almeida is an adjunct professor at the Centre for Latin American Studies at Georgetown University in Washington. Sergio Fausto is the executive director of the Fernando Enrique Cardoso Institute, a think tank in Sao Paulo, and he's also a former presidential advisor. Diego Scardone is a parliamentary advisor for Senator Lincheberge Farias, the leader of the PT, the Brazilian Workers' Party, in the Senate. Welcome to you all. I want to begin by asking, in a sense, what the most obvious question. What is the appeal of Jair Bolsonaro? Dr. Monica Ahuda. I think he's a person that comes across as genuine for many. Also, he has the fact that uh, he's one of the very few Congress members who hasn't been cited in any corruption scandal. And I think he has a very clear message that people wanted to hear, and unfortunately they didn't hear from other candidates, regarding concerns of public security against corruption, of course. And also, he's certainly a very conservative man, and but 
in a way, Brazilian society is also very conservative. So Diego uh, Scardone, uh-huh. a man who comes across as genuine with a clear message, conservative values, and he isn't mired in corruption. Difficult for the PT to challenge a candidate like that. Well, Jerry Bolsonaro is not new to Brazilian politics. He has been in uh, the Brazilian Congress and in Brazilian politics for decades. He is conservative, but not only conservatives, he's in the far right. Bolsonaro is pro-torture and has praised torture in recent speeches. And he's a dictatorship praising populists as well. He's raising an opinion boost through uh, mass misinformation techniques and also through like a sentiment of PT and the rejection related to PT something that uh, Adagi has been deconstructing over the last few weeks. And we have seen that opinion polls have shifted over the last week. And we hope that until Sunday, these will be reversed. Sergio Fausto, two quite different views then of Jair Bolsonaro, as you'd expect. What do you think his appeal is? Well, his appeal is that he's the quintessential anti-establishment candidate. Of course, his first target is the PT, but his main target is the political system as we knew it. So the prestige of the political system, all parties included, are so low in a historical low point in Brazil that someone that appeals to this prevailing anti-establishment sentiment in the Brazilian society with uh, credible credentials, because although he has been in politics for a long time, for 30 years, he has always been an outsider, never in the mainstream. And uh, what was a weakness in the past has become clearly a strength. Maruk, doctor, what would you see as his, he being his, his appeal? I think he ha- his timing has been excellent. He was quietly in Congress for 28 years, and now he has made his move. He tapped into the discontent, the frustration of voters the corruption, the poor state services, the economic recession, the job losses. He manages to present this blend of social conservatism, but also mixes with it economic liberalism in his particular vague proposals. So he presents these proposals that perhaps are there to reassure investors, Capital markets, both international and domestic, have been very tranquil listening to whatever he's said and whatever's been going on. The simplistic solutions sometimes presented may be exactly what people feel is what they would like to hear at this moment. And he is very good at talking. He doesn't say much while he talks, but that's the point sometimes. And I think that is really lies at the heart of his success. Tapping into the mood. So let's think about the background to all of this. You you mentioned the timing, Maruk Doctor. Just give us a sense of the state of Brazil's economy. So the state of the economy, it is just gradually emerging out of a recession, an unprecedented two-year recession. Alongside this recession, job unemployment has really rocketed up from about 6% before the recession started in 2014, Uh, all the way up to about 12-13% in recent years. Alongside the recession, the fiscal management, the poor fiscal management of the previous government, the PT governments, have been exposed. Brazil's public debt is 77% of GDP. Some 6.2% of that goes just in interest payments. 
the budget is is in a situation where primary surpluses of the early years, the boom years, if you like, of, under President Lula have absolutely disappeared. So that the government's uh, been living beyond its means, really? Well beyond its means Clearly. and with little effort made to... Well, I should say the current government has made efforts to reform, but it is a very fraught, uh, weakened government and a very divided Congress. Sergio Fasta, you're, you're agreeing, I think, in the background. I entirely. I'd just like to add uh, two or three comments. One is that it's been the longest recession ever registered yeah. in Brazilian history. And the recovery is the slowest ever registered in the Brazilian history. So it's hard to imagine from outside the level of social frustration in Brazil, especially when you consider that prior to that, there has been a lot of upward social mobility in Brazil from 2003 until 2010. So the, the emergence of a new so-called new middle class and this so-called middle class has been severely hit by the recession. No wonder that this bulk of Brazilian society who had voted for the PT in the past is now voting massively for Jair Bolsonaro. But is the PT a victim of circumstance, of a change in global economics, China perhaps demanding fewer commodities and so on, rather than just of economic mismanagement? I think, oh, go ahead. I think go ahead, what yeah. we are witnessing in Brazil is a combination of factors. We have witnessed uh, growth and low employment in Brazil between 2003 and 2014. Uh, from 2014 onwards, there's a criticism of Dilma's economic policy that even people inside PT agree that the austerity measures that she employed during her second term were wrong. But beyond that, we had that severe political instability in Brazil that has had a direct impact in our economy. And that political uh, in instability, to- though, comes out of the corruption scandals and all that, that has flowed from them. Uh, doesn't PT have to take responsibility for that and actually look to that for perhaps the the, the fact that it's struggling to win votes in this election. You know, well, that, that's, Diego Scardone. With, yes, with regards to the first criticisms against uh, the austerity measures, we agree that, that they were wrong. But in addition to that, we have to remember that right at the beginning of the second term of Dilma's government, Congress has approved what we call pauta bombas, which are budget bills that impact negatively in the Brazilian budget. And this was employed by the president of the lower house, Cunha, who is in jail right now, and also through massive support from Brazilian opposition. It's that old politics of as worse it is, the better for us because we can change the game. And that has been damaging for the Brazilian Mon- economy. Monica Ahuda. That's the problem. You see right there, they never recognize any mistake that they have done throughout those years. You know, it was very easy Relative I have mentioned one criticism. It was very speech. easy to have budget surplus when commodity boom. And the first term of uh, Lula was really, I, I was very happy with his performance. I would have voted for Lula. I, I don't, I'm here in the US for a long time, but if I were in Brazil, I would have voted for Lula in the first term. It's the worth pointing term. out that he increased welfare benefits and introduced a minimum wage. Yeah, and it was the right thing to do. But after the uh, subprime crisis, you start seeing a lot of counter-cyclical policies that were not sustainable over the long run. And by the time that uh, Dilma is elected, 
you see a reversal of many of the policies that in the first term of Lula that Lula had pursued. You start seeing a more, much more interventionist economy. And when you look at the PT program for this election, they're just talking about increasing resources for areas like education, health, which are very important. But okay. We, we, we will talk about that in a bit in a bit more detail in a moment. But I just want to think about this: the backdrop to this election. You have so President Lula, the PT president, who is embroiled in corruption, finds himself in prison. His successor, Dilma Rousseff, who was impeached. Uh, Sergio Fasto, those are two factors: the economy, corruption, the fate of these two leaders that perhaps have have affected this election enormously. But what about the other two things that are going on? Let's talk about crime and the conduct of this election. Crime is an enormous feature of Brazilian life and Brazilian concerns. Well, before addressing this topic, can I take a step back? And with all due respect to Diego, I think clearly, Diego, this strategy of shifting the blame to others is not working any longer to the petit. First, when the scandal, when the cyclopical uh, corruption scheme was discovered. Uh, the PT reacted as shifting the blame to the media, to the judicial power, as if they were parts of a conspiracy against the PT. Then, when uh, before that, when the economy started going down, they said that, that they shifted the blame to the external environment. So uh, clearly, this is this rhetoric is not working any longer. Just look at the polls. I mean, people are not buying the story any longer. Let me let me throw forward then. Let's talk about how crime and we'll talk a bit about how this election has been conducted. How are those affecting how Brazilians think about which way to vote? Crime has become endemic in Brazil. The rate of homicides in Brazil uh, has reached record levels in the last years. Uh, Now uh, we have three homicides per 100,000 inhabitants, what puts Brazil among the most violent countries in the world. The nature of crime in Brazil has changed. There are strong organized crime linked to drug trafficking in Brazil. And who are the sections of the population who are worst hit by this wave of criminality? Poor people. Right. And it's no but wonder Sergio, uh, it is worth noting. It is the poor people who have areas that are, have, have more poor people have tended to vote more PT. That's the irony in of the, the whole situation. It's the, it, it, you're right. If you look at the northeastern part of Brazil, when you take uh, huge metropolitan areas such as Rio, which is emblematic of this endemic crime problem, those poor people tend to vote to Bolsonaro as a sort of knee-jerk reaction to criminality based on the idea, which in my view is wrong, that we need extrajudicial killings, for instance, to deal with that problem. So, Monica Ahuda, Um, that is one of the policy platforms. Is that an answer to the kind of crime levels that uh, Sergio has just been describing? No, I think what what a lot of people are seeing now is that that wasn't always the case, that that you could make this connection, but there is a clear connection between corruption and, and the chaos of the public security system in Brazil. I'm originally from Rio. My home state is like the ground zero of corruption in in Brazil. And uh, you had the governor now, former governor, who is in prison. And the scale of of corruption is something mind-boggling. Diego Scardone, can your party 
hope to reassure voters that it can tackle crime effectively if it is linked to Brazil's economic circumstances and indeed the levels of corruption? Yes. First, I think we are talking to an international audience. So it's very important to explain that security in Brazil is dealt by each state and not by the federal government. But having said that, as uh, the previous commentators were talking, and I agree with them, organized crime in Brazil is acting through borders between states. Therefore, one of the measures that Adagi is supporting is a united security service that will work around the whole of Brazil. The other candidate, Jair Bolsonaro, praises policemen or people that use means of extrajudicial ways to kill Monica Ahuda, is that ever defensible? I think that a lot of it has to put in context, right? And, uh, for example, one thing that he complains is that nobody cares, seems to care, when police officers are killed and there is a real uh, anxiety but, by the police force that they are not being valued and that they're not being given the resources that they need. But that still doesn't justify, that's not the same as justifying no, extrajudicial just, killings. Surely the context me, is democracy. Now, what, uh, what he said is that between having a police officer killed and a criminal living in a situation of confrontation, which is like how the police here in the U.S. acts. Sergio right? Fausto. The Brazilian police cannot be compared with the police in the U.S., nor the Brazilian society can be compared with the American society. The level of violence in Brazil has been extreme. Uh, Brazil is a brutal country. Let's make no mistake about that. So I think it's completely unjustifiable to praise extrajudicial killings. But Jair Bolsonaro has never been explicit about that, but he flirts with the idea. And this is dangerous enough because it's like uh, letting the dogs out. I'm conscious of the time, but Maruk Doctor, I just want to bring you in briefly to talk about, if we may, the conduct of this election campaign and the role of social media. Just give us a sense of how it's been used. I Just before talking on the social media, I think the levels of violence in Brazil are extreme. 175 homicides a day, over 62, 63,000 last year. Having said that, I would say there is absolutely never any justification to use extrajudicial killings. Also, consider widespread gun ownership and gun uh, carrying around of guns will only escalate the situation, not make it calmer. These sort of simplistic solutions and using a campaign, so coming into your question, using a campaign based on fear, fear of what might happen and might even you have heard has happened to people you know, is not the way to go around addressing what are very complex social issues. Brazil is a country absolutely ridden with inequalities. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at Brazil. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email 
Email us the real story at bbc.co.uk or tweet at Ritala. But now let's get back to this edition of the real story with me, Ritala Shah, looking at Brazil. And my guests, Dr. Maruk Doctor, who's from the University of Hull here in England, Dr. Monica Ahuda de Almeida from Georgetown University. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Sergio Fausto is the executive director of the Fernando Enrique Cardoso Institute. That's a think tank in Sao Paulo. And he's also a former presidential advisor. And Diego Scardone is a parliamentary advisor to the PT, the Brazilian Workers' Party. Thank you all very much. Earlier in the programme, we talked about the background to Brazil's willingness to embrace a candidate who not only promises law and order, but appears, as we've been discussing, to jettison some of the foundations that underpin a liberal democracy. Now, we're going to discuss what a Bolsonaro presidency might mean for Brazil's environment in a moment. Could protection uh, for the Amazon from logging and farming be lifted? But first, let's talk about whether this country's democracy is somehow in jeopardy. Jair Bolsonaro is a former army captain and much of his inner circle has close ties to the country's current military leadership. Brazil lived under a military dictatorship for more than two decades. It came to an end only in 1985. Maruk, Doctor, what do you think a Bolsonaro government would look like? Would it have a militaristic aspect? Certainly, he has had many military advisers. Uh, his vice presidential candidate is a, a recently retired military general. But it's worth remembering that he, in fact, approached certain traditional politicians to join his ticket, and they all refused. So the military will certainly have more influence in government. He's likely to appoint ministers who are retired uh, military men. But the military in the sense of the currently operating armed forces, I think at this point, they are still trying to not get drawn into, let's say, this new adventure, if you want. Uh, Monica Huda, do you think it's worth sacrificing perhaps some of Brazil's democratic credentials, if that buys you some security, by moving closer to the military? The fact that he is a former military, that in itself for many people, raise flags. But, you know, I think that the military can be very helpful in many areas, of course, in defense, in the bordering. We need, we need stronger defense uh, in, the, in our borders, right? I would hope that the fight against drug trafficking would take place on the borders and not in the middle of the, uh, the cities. But is that, Brazil's, is that Brazil's biggest problem? And what it role? is. It is, because I, a lot of the weapons, we, we are getting a lot of the, the trade of weapons. It's, it's just huge. And, 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 and the is weapons that a are role for the style. military or is that a role for the police? At the borders for the military. And I've heard from people from inside the campaign that they also want to use the military for infrastructure projects in the interior of the country, which the military has expertise, right? Ma- um, Maruk Doxa, mm-hmm. is, that, uh, is that usual to have the military on your borders? Would it be welcome, do you think, in any country to have the military uh, involved in, in, in the interior? Well, in Brazil, I think there is a huge sensitivity about the Amazon and having a foreign presence in the Amazon. And so to that extent, the sort of nationalist view of Brazil's security, which is, of course, the typical view many countries will have, but in this particular circumstance, does imply in some way that there will be a military presence along the border. And given the scale of organized crime happening on the border, very often that seems to be broadly acceptable 
in Brazilian society. I think the more important distinction, however, about the role of the military is on the issue of its attitude, its very nationalist and interventionist attitude towards growth and development. The Brazilian military has a very strong, traditionally, has always had a very strong vocation almost to boost Brazil's development. And I think here, international markets have got it slightly, I think, odd They think that Bolsonaro will be very economically liberal. But if he has a lot of military presence in his future cabinet, uh, then I don't see how they can expect to realize this sort of economic liberal version that his economic advisor, Paulo Guedes, talks about. Uh, Can I I inject there? I mean, I understand your concern, but I think they have uh, been very clear about this. If you read their program for governance, the number one thing that they keep hitting on is just the need to reduce the size of the state. Bolsonaro, in many in many interviews, acknowledged that there was a role for state involvement in the economy, especially in the beginning of industrialization of the country in the 1940s, 1950s. But nowadays, a large state is associated with corruption. The bureaucracy is associated with corruption, and there are a lot of studies that support that. His government is clearly one that defends the reduction of the size of the state, the reduction of spending. He is already has a a plan to reduce the number of ministries. And the people who are uh, leading his economic team, they have a very clear record of being very pro-market and pro-liberal reforms. Sorry, sorry, Monica, nothing is very clear about uh, what (laughs) You know, you just read read his program. You just read his program. Well, I know, uh-huh. I've been in government for eight years. I know how this thing works in real life. This coalition has been put together hastily, mm-hmm. right? And you have different groups that do not necessarily see eye to eye in various issues. Exactly. And I think uh, Dr. Makhrub is absolutely correct in pointing out that there is a latent conflict between the nationalistic mindset of the military and the liberal team, which has been getting around the economist and a previously announced finance minister, Paulo Guedes. Let's see how this play mm-hmm. out. The program and all programs are deliberately vague. For us, I mean, I know people who are working close in the so-called headquarters of his campaign. What we have to judge is like the, if you read the two programs, right? And I think there is a stark uh, contrast between these programs in, of economic projects. That's what we go for. On the other hand, I understand what you're saying, that once you're in power, that it's really that you put them to the test, whether they're going to be faithful. I understand that. But clearly, that's how the business community in Brazil believes as well. And you see that in just how the stock market and dollar behaves when he became uh, increasing his lead in the in the polls. Monica, it, 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 it remains it remains to be seen. Markets are myopic by nature. Yeah. Ah, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a signal that they're giving to the okay. government. I, I, I got in, if okay. I could just bring you in. <laughs> okay, is, yeah, is, there a, is there a mood about which makes it difficult for the PT where actually there is an anti-globalization mood, not just in Brazil, but all over the world, and one which in which some many people are choosing perhaps to have a different view of the role of the state in their lives. We have two different, very different projects. Uh, we face two very different projects. In one side, 
we have a view of Bolsonaro himself as a liberal surrounded by military uh, nationalists. On the other side, you have Adagi, who has a kind of uh, developmentalist approach to the economy, where the state ought to have a presence. So what we have in Brazil now is a small state versus a state that will intervene in the economy to create jobs and to foment the economy. More people having jobs, more people will spend money and will hit the Brazilian economy. The problem is that they don't, start, they don't know when to stop intervening, right? You have a, a development bank, the largest development bank that has more credit than the World Bank. And they compete with the banking system right in front. That, that's why you have the, the they kept they kept with the I know they kept lending they kept lending to all the brash to all these big companies well established companies giving loans like very low interest rates. Monica, uh-huh. for example, you say that uh, Bolsonaro makes very clear comments. Actually not. For example, initially they talk about, Geddes at least talks about mm-hmm. privatization of state-owned uh, enterprises. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Bolsonaro immediately butts in and say, oh, yeah, 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 privatization, but not Petrobras, not generations, uh, the Electrobras process almost on the brink of going for privatization is now going to be halted. It's all very conditioned. Maybe the the talk has been liberal, but I fear the practice will not Mm -hmm. be liberal. It will be interventionist because that's the way Brazil has developed. Let's, I mean, that is Brazil's development history. Let's yeah, hold on to those two quite distinct views of, of which way the economy may go. I want to come back to this idea of Brazil's relationship with its military, because I think that is part and parcel of this agenda that also has talked about traditional family values, very tough on crime and so on. There is a memory, of course, of Brazil's military dictatorship, which is still raw. Now, in the repression that followed that, there were hundreds of people were disappeared or killed and many more were detained and tortured. An amnesty law was passed in 1979, which meant there was no public reckoning or trials about what had happened in those 20 or so years. And today, the majority of Brazil's voters, there's about 147 million of them, they didn't live through that military regime, which came to an end in '85. A new documentary, The Maiden's Tower, tells the story of a dictatorship-era women's prison in Sao Paulo. Susana Lira is the film's director, and she explained more about the tower. La Torre foi una prisión en Brasil na década de 60 para década de 70. The tower was a prison during the 1960s and 70s, where hundreds of women were held because they were against the dictatorship. They were fighting for democracy. Prominent women, like the former president, Dilma Rousseff, were imprisoned there. There were also university students, sociologists, historians, doctors, and they ended up there either because they believed in the armed struggle or simply because they were handing out leaflets against the dictatorship in a university. The women arrived in this prison after they'd been held in military detention, where they'd been tortured. At least in the tower, their families knew where they were and they could visit the women. It is shocking how the old talk of military dictatorship is being heard in Brazil. It isn't a fight against corruption at all. It's just militaristic talk, conservative discourse, which is frightening the women who were imprisoned in the tower, and all of us who have seen this before during the dictatorship. Jair Bolsonaro talks about massacres and eliminating people who don't share his views. So it's very frightening. People are worried that they'll end up back in prison. During the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, Bolsonaro paid homage to a well-known Brazilian torturer. 
So people are astonished at the possibility of having a dictatorship in Brazil again. And in a poll, 50% of the Brazilian population said they thought it was a possibility. There's ignorance about what happened during the dictatorship. For 50 years, there was silence about what happened then. People who survived that period didn't want to talk about it. And I think this is how we could have another dictatorship. People are ignorant and think that during that period there was order and progress, but there wasn't. And I think that people think this because of the silence. Film director Susanna Lira. Uh, Monica Huda, there's one specific point I want to pick up from, from what Susanna Lira was saying there, which feeds into where Brazil is heading in democratic terms. It is that that specific point that Jair Bolsonaro, when he voted to impeach Dilma Rousseff, dedicated that vote to a torturer. That is an extraordinary thing for mm-hmm. an elected politician to do. Yeah, I just want to say something. I don't think that anybody who is voting for Bolsonaro is nostalgic of, of the dictatorship regarding its record on, on human rights. As growing up in Brazil, I never, until I hit, I was 16, 17 years old, I never thought that, I never knew that I was living in a dictatorship, right? Because my family, uh, my father was a, a, a salesman. He was a, he used to say, uh, sell the Encyclopedia Britannica. And my mother was a housewife. They, and from, for many, the time of, of those years in which you have a, a dictatorship were years of, uh, they link those years as economic boom and security. And I think that when people are nostalgic, they are nostalgic of, of those things, right? We, the reason why I didn't know that I was in dictatorship when I was growing up there, because we had elections for governor, I think for, for mayors as well. And I saw as a kid that there was rotation in power, although they were all generals, but there was a rotation in power. So, and nowadays, uh, support for democracy in Brazil has never been higher indeed. Higher in, in, since the, the democratization. Diego so, Scardone, do you then feel confident if these memories are, are, are faded, are perhaps not very powerful, there is support for democracy? Does Brazil have the institutions to maintain its democracy, even if there is a leader who is quite close to the military? This is astonishing, actually, because I was born in 87. So Brazil was already a democratic country. And yes, polls show that Brazilians have never supported uh, democracy so much as they do now. But also polls show that around half of the Brazilians are feared uh, of uh, a proximity of a possible dictatorship in Brazil. Um, if, we, if we read the literature, it's very clear the, the dictatorship was not honest, that there was a lot of corruption there and violence. Indeed, the violence has increased over the last few years, but the, the violence there was different as well. It was a kind of state violence where innocent people were killed, dissent was oppressed or suppressed. So, but does, does, Brazil the have election- the, does Brazil have the institutions to guard against a return to that kind of uh, way of life, that kind of political life? I'm not absolutely sure. If we, if you take into consideration uh, uh, the first day of the new president of the Supreme Court, he, 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 he was talking about 1964 as an event rather than an, a, a military coup. And that's worrying. It's okay. worrying also that Jair Bolsonaro is bringing a lot of people from the military to, to, to be beside him in government. If something similar to Dilma happens to Bolsonaro, these people will perhaps be able to, to, to claim power. Sergio, very briefly. 
Well, very briefly, I have no doubt whatsoever that Bolsonaro has uh, anti-democratic instincts. But I think uh, Brazilian institutions and society are strong enough to absorb the shock and protect democracy from deteriorating in the country. So I want to look at one other very specific thing that's important, not just in Brazil, but beyond the country's borders. uh, And that is the fate of the Amazon, a vast forest, a vital resource in the battle against climate change, and actually a crucible of biodiversity. But Jair Bolsonaro's promise to bring progress, which one imagines would come in the form of logging, mining, agribusiness, and to lift environmental laws and protection. Chika Minami is an Amazon campaign coordinator for the environmental group Greenpeace. She's based in Sao Paulo. What does Jair Bolsonaro represent for her? Jair Bolsonaro, for us, he doesn't just represent the extreme right in South America. He also can represent a final or a total destruction for the environment because his campaign promise sounds like threats. He's saying that he is taking out uh, Brazil out of the Paris Climate Agreement. He wants us to extinct most of uh, protected areas and indigenous lands, making easy the access or open large roads in the middle of the forest for timber industry and soy farmers. He wants to merge the Ministry of Environment with the Ministry of Agriculture, but actually putting someone from the productive sector in charge, which will be very bad for the environment. And also he had already said that he wants to end all types of activism in Brazil. This is a big threat, not only for Brazil, but also for the whole planet, because without the Amazon, we cannot keep climate change uh, within the boundaries that we need to have a good life. And just give us a sense of the kind of protections that exist for the Amazon and indeed for indigenous lands right now. The creation and the effective implementations of protected areas or the demarcation of indigenous lands has proved to be the best way to protect the forest. And it really works as a a wall against uh, the deforestation. Actually decreasing this protection, it's not a good thing. It could open those areas to more destruction. And also he said that he will end IBAMA, which is the Brazilian Environmental Agency, also uh, responsible for the field inspections, so on and so forth. Because the things that Bolsonaro is saying, this already has an immediate reflection on the ground. This weekend, for example, we had Ibama agents being threatened and also their cars being put on fire. So the escalation of violence in the field had already begun. That's uh, Chika Minami from Greenpeace. How would you describe the future of the environment uh, in Brazil if Jair Bolsonaro comes to power? Diego. 
Well, I think I think she summarized uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, our concerns in Brazil with regards to Obama and with regards to the institutions that basically defend these policies to merge the Ministry of uh, Agriculture with the Ministry of Environment. Uh, it's it's a clear perception that uh, the agriculture and its lobby uh, will uh, encompass the uh, importance of the environment uh, in Brasilia. Sergio Fausto, is this threat overstated, do you think? No, I'm really, let me put it that way, I'm really concerned because I think the, the Bolsonaro has bad instincts with regards to the environment. He has a very primitive and regressive view in that respect. But I don't share this sort of cataclysmic view because I think there are countervailing forces in Brazilian society. Even in the corporate sector, even multinationals who are in Brazil operating in the agribusiness sector, they know that a, a, a head-on attack on the environment would generate closure of external markets to them. So um, uh, it's let's see how this play out. I'm concerned. I'm somewhat alarmed, but clearly I don't share those catastrophic views that were expressed before me. Monica Ahuda, Brazilians need jobs, the economy needs to grow, but on the global stage, many people will want to see Brazil taking a lead in protecting the environment. Could Brazil, as uh, Bolsonaro has threatened in the past, simply walk away, for instance, from the Paris Climate Change Agreement? In my opinion, you know, it, that would be a very, very unfortunate thing to happen. You know, one one uh, light in the uh, at the end of the tunnel that I just saw today that they, he's con- reconsidering uh, his decision to uh, put together the the agriculture ministry and the and the environment ministry, which, um, from what I know, doesn't work in anywhere any part of the world. So uh, there are a lot of moderate people working for Bolsonaro's campaign. They're quietly working for him. Uh, they're not debating. They're not in the social media, uh, but they're working for him. And my hope is that if he's really uh, committed to creating the jobs of the future, to uh, foster uh, tourism in, in, in Brazil, especially ecotourism, that he, there will be an economic incentive to protect uh, uh, land in Brazil and um, and and I I do hope that that happens. We're it's almost so, out so of we're almost out of time. I'm going to move on. <laughs> if if Brazil chooses Jair Bolsonaro, is it embracing some kind of strongman rule that, let's face it, has become popular in many parts of the world, or is this a more profound change that will change the nature of Brazilian democracy? Uh, Maruk, doctor. I think Brazil, as a recession, uh, the corruption investigations have really battered its institutions. And for years, for decades, Brazilian politicians have been muddling along, muddling through each crisis, each scandal. And now I think finally, if somebody steps forward and does this in a way that respects the rule of law, and shakes up, in a way, the system, yes, we could see something like that. However, I really have lots of cautions, lots of concerns uh, about it, the situation. And the most important, let's say, sign for us to look for is how do the people 
accept it. Are things going to be calm when he takes office in early January? Or are we going to have riots escalating to violence that will tempt him to bring the military onto the streets? I think that's where we will see if we're going to go faster or slower or just actually have a chance for reforms. Diego Scardone, given everything that Brazil's gone through, is the lure of the strong man simply too powerful for your party to succeed? No, actually, opinion polls have shown that this has changed over the last week. Between the 15th of October and the 23rd, uh, this week, uh, Bolsonaro has lost already 2% of the voters. His rejection increased by 5%, uh, going from uh, to, to 40%, which is similar to Haddad. If that trend keeps going until Sunday, we could see a reverse uh, similar to what happened in the last election when Dilma Rousseff was running against uh, Aécio Neves. Monica Huda. So the battle is not lost. Monica Huda. Yeah, I know. I... I, I... We win elections, and uh, we uh, we don't know who's going to win the elections. There is a prob- high probability of Bolsonaro, but we just uh, you know we can't. Uh, nobody can celebrate until elections uh, are happen occur. Um, I'm I'm. If people are concerned, I think there is a lot of reason to be concerned about a Bolsonaro government and and threat to democracy. But I'm equally concerned, if not more, with the win from the Adad. Uh, and they are the ones in their own program who say uh, about changing the uh, the makeup of the uh, superior uh, uh, courts and and uh, changing the that constitution. Has Pardon? That has changed. That's not true. That's not true. It's in the program. They change. They change according to the weather. Okay. No, but you're worried about those values, elements of the program. According I... to what voters want. Okay. But they were clear and transparent towards that. Okay. 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 Just read it. Sergio Fausto, where do you see Brazil's future? Embracing a strong man or is this just a a temporary change for now? Is there a more profound change at at work here? Well, it remains to be seen. My take is that in in a symbolic way, Brazil is sort of back in this strong man rule. But in real life, uh, to run the country is not a one-man show. Brazil is a federal system, uh, has a multi-party system, has Congress with uh, veto powers, has a strong judicial power. So if Bolsonaro tries to test the waters, uh, let's put it that way, I think he won't go very far. Plenty to think about there. Plenty to look forward to, I think. Uh, Sergio Fausto, Diego Scardone, Monica Ahuda Dalmeda and Maruk Doctor, thank you all very much. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, go online and search for BBC The Real Story. If you like this week's programme, you don't ever have to miss another edition. Subscribe to the podcast, search for The Real Story in your podcast app. And let us know your thoughts. Email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk or tweet me at Ritala. From me, Ritala Shah and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.